0: You're listening to Transforming Insight, the podcast for anyone who has the ambition to transform their insight team and create an insight-driven organisation. Your host is James Witchley, Chief Executive of the Insight Management Academy and the author of the book Transforming Insight, the 42 Secrets of Successful Corporate Insight Teams.
1: Hello again, and welcome to the latest episode of the Transforming Insight podcast. This one is called Improving Stakeholder Relationships. The most progressive insight teams recognise that they're on a journey from being reactive service providers to key business partners. They want to influence decision makers and their decisions. They want to be included early in discussions about business challenges and to be valued for their opinions, experience and input. They don't want to be called in late in the day, with insights merely being used to rubber-stamp decisions that have already been taken. In the last episode, Lisa and I were discussing how we would never influence any group of people before we had taken steps to better understand them, and how most of our insight teams could improve the insight that we had regarding the internal audience for our work. But having taken steps to better understand decision-makers in general, and our key stakeholders in particular, We then need to put those insights into action and drive change. So far in our podcasts, the steps we have explored to transform insight are focused mainly on whole team mindset and whole team behaviours. This next step is also one for the whole team to embrace, but the nature of the challenge itself is probably more personal than most of the ones we've looked at so far. It could well be the biggest challenge yet for some of our colleagues. We all know people who are natural relationship builders, people who find their own way to win friends and influence people. We may have observed particular things that they have done and tried to learn from the tips that they've given us. One example that sticks in my mind was a colleague who, many years ago, realised that senior management had a perception that his team were always rather inclined to say no and were seen as natural blockers to things that others wanted to change. So he decided that from then on, he was going to say yes. Yes to everything. Now, that wasn't actually as reckless as it sounds, because he made sure that he made people aware of the implications if he did exactly as I asked him to. But every time he explained the negative consequences of course of action, he made a positive suggestion for how the business could take a slightly different decision and avoid the potential problems. By changing his default response from no, we can't do that because, to, yes, we could do that for you, but you might want to think about this. He framed the subsequent interaction in a far more positive way, and it quickly shaped the stakeholders' perception of him and his team as problem solvers, not business brokers. But not everyone can find their own way to behaviour change like this, and some of us will find it difficult to be influencers at work. So let's think about who influences us in our own personal lives and why we find those people so persuasive. If I asked you whose advice you are most likely to accept, you'll probably think about two different groups of people. On the one hand, there are family and friends who are obviously on our side and who would always consider our best interests. Then there are people whose authority we accept on a particular subject, especially those who are adept at sharing their knowledge in a way that makes sense to us. The perfect combination are people we like and who we also think are more knowledgeable than us on the subject in question. Our opinions are often shaped by theirs, without us even realising it. In the language of behavioural science, we all constantly buy the messenger, not the message. Conversely, we are far less likely to be influenced by those we instinctively distrust, or people we don't know well enough to judge whether we can trust them or not. We're far more likely to question the advice itself if it comes from a source whose wisdom we question, or whom we suspect may have a motive other than helping us to solve our problem. Once we have doubts about the advice giver, it can be very difficult for us to listen to the advice, even if sometimes it's objectively right. This applies at both an individual and a category level. How do you pick out the genuine bargain when a used car salesman is in full flow? Or make an objective decision about pension provision if you distrust the financial advisor sitting in front of you? The way that influence operates in the workplace has far more in common with the way it works in our personal lives than we often assume. People buy from people just as much between 9am and 5pm Monday to Friday, as they do in their home life at the weekends. Therefore, if we want to influence senior people and drive change with our insights, we need to appreciate that it's no good just working on making our insights better. We also need to work on other people's perceptions of us, both as individuals and as a department. The Academy's best practice work suggests that insight teams should aspire to be trusted advisors Trusted Advisors to the Senior Decision-Makers in Our organizations. That phrase, trusted advisor, is used quite commonly by those seeking to influence others. But it was also given a more specific definition by Maester, Green and Galford in their book, The Trusted Advisor, in 2000. This was initially written to guide professional advisors in the US, but we believe that it's highly relevant for aspiring insight teams worldwide. Maester Green and Galford say that to become trusted advisers, we should first work on our trustworthiness, which they say is built by conveying credibility and reliability and an appropriate degree of intimacy. However, all this can be undermined if we are seen to be self-orientated, in other words, driven by what's best for us, not the person we are trying to advise. You can't make someone trust you at work any more than you can make someone love you at home, but you can take a disciplined approach to making yourself trustworthy. So what are the practical steps that we can follow? Well, taking our cue from Meister, Green and Galford, I think we should work on our credibility, reliability, intimacy and self-orientation. With credibility, well, many analysts and researchers already have credibility in the eyes of senior managers. But if this credibility largely rests on their technical expertise in doing analysis or doing research, then it's time for us to figure out how to build our credibility as people who can apply customer knowledge to solve business problems. Reliability. Well, again, all insight specialists want to be seen as reliable, but there's always scope for improving the way we manage expectations and build a track record for delivering what has been promised on time and every time. Intimacy. The concept of intimacy in a professional workplace I think is more of a challenge for some, but there are steps that we can all take to consider other people's feelings and to be more open about our own. And self-orientation, this takes conscious effort. It can be difficult to recognise self-orientation unless we consciously reflect on our own behaviour and the way we approach conversations with stakeholders. In my book, transforming insight, I said that the 13th secret of successful insight teams is that they seek to become trusted advisors to senior decision makers. If your organization is a member of the IMA, you can explore this topic further by reading the Insight Leader Guide, IMP 303, An Introduction to Insight Influence, and watching some of the Insight Leader videos we've recorded on this topic. The same subjects covered by the IMA's online workshop, TIP 301, Influencing Skills for Insight, open to both members and non-members.
0: You're listening to the Transforming Insight podcast published by the Insight Management Academy, the world's leading authority on transforming corporate insight teams.
1: Let's think a bit more about those four attributes identified by Maester, Green and Galford as key to becoming trusted advisors. What do they mean for corporate insight professionals? And how easily can we improve on them? I often think that people who work in insight teams should start from a good place when we consider both credibility and reliability. As knowledge workers, it should be relatively straightforward for us to find ways of demonstrating our credibility. In fact, I'd say that the default tendency in other departments is often to assume that we've got a lot of technical understanding about how to produce research and analysis. The key question is whether we can demonstrate an ability to translate this technical competence into customer and market understanding, understanding that helps to solve business problems. Likewise, with reliability, I'd say that most insight managers, researchers and analysts I know are very conscientious and we gain a lot of satisfaction from completing tasks on time to our high standard. I guess the key challenge here is proving that the organisation can rely on us for sound advice rather than just for the timely delivery of data. By contrast, and I know I'm going to make a great big generalisation here, but I think that intimacy and self-orientation can be more problematic. For intimacy, well, Lisa was talking in the last episode of our podcast very eloquently about personality types. It's usually the case that a number of Insight team members are more likely to be introverts, or at least further along the axis between introvert and extrovert, than team members working in marketing or sales departments. I'm not saying everyone is, just that the balance in our teams is quite often different to that found in other teams. It's also true that many research and analysis functions started off as reactive service providers and so the default tendency has been for us to keep our heads down and work hard on producing outputs, not necessarily on getting to know senior decision makers. But best practice shows that if we want to work on our trustworthiness and so increase our chances of being treated like trusted advisors – we probably need to take a few risks and share more about ourselves, who we are, in order to encourage more intimacy from those we want to advise. And most of us probably need to work a bit on what Meister, Green and Galford call self-orientation as well. Now, this one might come as a surprise because if insight managers don't usually go around blowing their own trumpets, why would anyone think we're guilty of self-orientation? I think the answer Ironically, is the flip side of our reputation for being technical experts and for wanting to please the people around us. If a senior decision-maker asks an insight professional a question, especially one that we don't precisely know the answer to, just watch how often we give a really long answer to evidence our knowledge about other things. Now, sometimes that's a genuine attempt to show what we know in the hope that the decision maker can find within the answer something that's useful to them. But I think it's also a defence mechanism, a barrier that we put up to manage the risk that the stakeholder thinks that we don't know our stuff. The irony is that when we do this, we might have some success defending our credibility, but in the same instant, we reinforce a reputation for being a team that knows a lot of technical stuff, but can't translate that into a language or ideas that can help others. I think we need to start with stakeholders' needs. Listen carefully, then figure out how the knowledge in our heads can be summarized and applied. Or, if we don't know the answer, be brave and say so. It might feel like a risk, But ultimately, it's more likely to demonstrate that our focus is on the stakeholder's issue, not on the pride we feel in parading our own knowledge. So here's a reminder of five key points that you might like to take away from this podcast. Number one, as corporate insight professionals, we should work on our reputation as messengers, as well as on the message we convey. Two, we should seek ways to build our credibility as business advisors. Three, we should actively develop a reputation for reliability. Four, we should be more open to sharing our feelings and personalities at work and recognise the importance of knowing colleagues on a personal level. Five, we should reflect on the things that we do subconsciously, the things that might make us appear self-orientated either as individuals or as a department. Earlier in this episode, I referenced the balance in our teams between extroverts and introverts, and the issues that this can sometimes raise. I think this is especially an issue with influencing, so we're going to explore that topic in more detail in a future episode of our podcast. But before we get there, it's time to speak to another senior leader and see what we can learn from their approach to transforming insight.
0: Thank you for listening. Transforming Insight is available on all leading podcast platforms. Subscribe now to get notified when the next episode is released. Check out all the resources in the show notes and sign up to our email list. The Transforming Insight podcast is brought to you by the Insight Management Academy, who reserves the rights to the content. For more information on any of the ideas discussed in the episode, please visit www.insight-management.org.